Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. And I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. It's Thursday, December 8th. There's often, in any financial market, a reasonable amount of groupthink, sometimes known as the herd effect, or maybe even a mob mentality. There's actually some really interesting research into this. You can check out the paper Bubbles, Human Judgment and Expert Opinion by Robert J. Schiller for more. Crypto investors are no exception to groupthink, and their in-group behavior comes with a lot of catchphrases, like the famous GM and the infamous have fun staying poor, Or the tongue-in-cheek, Bitcoin will fix this, where this is basically any social or economic issue you could imagine. In this episode with Bloomberg senior editor Mike Regan. It's common sense, but humans, uh, you know, traditionally aren't the best practitioners of common sense. And Bloomberg reporter Emily Nicole. It seems crazy. Why would you store your money on an exchange where it's really difficult to, to get access to it or you don't own the rights to it? Like, isn't that bonkers? We'll tackle the mood among the crypto faithful and why some of them are now evangelizing cold wallets. Emily, you have written probably more than any of us on the team about the culture of crypto. And one of the elements of that, I think, is really reflected in the phrase, not your keys, not your coins. For the people who don't obsessively, compulsively read your newsletters on a regular basis, can you just explain what that means? So not your keys, not your coins means that if you are storing your crypto with a third party online, typically, there may be something in the terms of service that says that while your assets are with that provider, they actually own the rights to those assets and not you. And it's typically actually the the most popular way that uh, at least the Terms of Service Act for many of the largest providers of crypto custody. So if you think about platforms like Celsius that went bankrupt earlier this year, when you put your assets on Celsius, you didn't actually have any claims to those assets once they were in Celsius's possession, because that is how Celsius was able to do things with those assets once they had the rights to generate the yields for the loans that they were creating. But conversely as well, if you think about even the banks that offer crypto trading now for some customers, like in the UK, we have an app called Revolut. It's also pretty big in Europe. Any assets that you buy with Revolut, so if you can buy Bitcoin, you can buy Ether, you're actually just putting your name attached to a bit of Bitcoin in Revolut's big Bitcoin pile, Mm -hmm. and you don't own any rights to that. So it also makes it very difficult if you then want to be able to withdraw that Bitcoin and take it somewhere else. Now, first of all, that seems wild. (laughs) 
in the sense that when you talk to crypto folks, and especially when you talk to people who describe themselves as Bitcoin maximalists, the idea that you would knowingly, willingly hand over, you know, the right to your crypto seems bonkers. But, you know, Mike, something that you have addressed kind of similar to the idea of, you know, culture is kind of this idea of like convenience, right? It is really hard, actually, to hold on to your own stuff. And so you've got people who are like, one, surely they'll give me back if I ask. (laughs) 2022 demonstrated not necessarily. And two, well, surely they're not doing anything nefarious with that. Also, (laughs) TBD. So on the podcast that you host with Vildana, What Goes Up, you had a guest, Leah Wald, recently, who started talking about cold wallets. Now, cold wallets emerged as this idea of, okay, people may do nefarious things, people may go bust, here's how to keep your keys safe. What is that like in practice? Well, you know, I think it gets to the heart of the fact that people trust the blockchain itself, especially with Bitcoin. They don't trust all these other intermediaries who are working on top of the blockchain. And I think that's really a lesson that's come back home. You know, there seems to have been a complacency that had grown around the likes of a huge exchange like FTX uh, and all the others. And in practice, it's it's really getting back to that notion, not your keys, not your coins. People want to hold these private keys somewhere safe offline. And if you look at the data, uh, there's a website, CryptoQuant, that tracks uh, a whole bunch of things. But one of the things I'm fascinated in is how much Bitcoin is being withdrawn from exchanges and put presumably in cold storage. And in the middle of November, something like half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin a day, something like 29,000 Bitcoins a day were getting yanked off of uh, exchanges. The problem, though, is that, you know, you put those private keys on a hard drive and we've all heard the hilariously sad stories of people losing their hard drive forgetting the password to their hard drive or, you know, the one poor guy, I think it was in Wales, who th- threw it out and was trying to bribe the people at the dump to let him go dig dig around for his hard drive because the value of the Bitcoin had, had gone up so much. So there are companies that offer this service as well. But I think, you know, this turmoil we've seen in the last month or so has really revived that whole notion of you want it those private keys as close to possible and as safe a place as possible. And for many, that is simply on a hard drive that you can put in a safe, put in your closet, put wherever. There's one, a few interesting ones have come out recently too regarding NFTs. There's now cold storage wallets where you can store your NFTs, but also show them off to your friends. It looks (laughs) like a little iPhone. So you can sort of scroll through your NFT collection, uh, but it's in cold storage, meaning it's not connected to the internet. No one can sort of reach in through the internet. But somebody could steal your little device. Someone could, yeah. Or you could put it in the dump and, and have to bribe a trash man to, to get, it back, get it back. So like, one of the things I always remind people that in addition to the joke that, you know, we'll kind of make where it's like, haha, underlying technology, crypto is also just tech, right? And so getting people to memorize passwords, very difficult problem. <laughs> Getting people to back up their hard drives, very difficult problem. Like the number of people in my own family, shout out to my family, (laughs) who (laughs) are like, well, you know, I know you said to back up these files, but I didn't. Are they gone forever? And I'm like, oh, my God. 
I, th- I, sh- I could be a member of your family, I feel like. <laughs> so you, you layer on top of, shall we say, the default stance of human beings, which is not to do the right thing when it comes to tech because it's annoying. And then you say, and make that potentially be worth tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars. How do we solve that tension? How are people trying to solve this tension? Uh, you know, I'm not sure you do. And I think what happens is, um, you know, maybe you put your coins in cold storage when Bitcoin's at twenty, thirty thousand dollars dollars Ethereum's at 3000 and the prices collapse. And then you kind of forget about them, mm-hmm. you know. And then five years goes by, 10 years go by, and you go, wait a minute, I... I'm a Bitcoin millionaire. Where is that hard drive? What is the password? So I think it's, to your point, I think it's human nature. There is no simple, elegant solution for it other than the things you're talking about. You know, back it up. Don't leave it somhere in the sun if it's a hard (laughs) drive. Don't let your kids near it. Not on a beach in the Bahamas. Yeah, I mean, it's common sense, but humans, uh, you know, traditionally aren't the best practitioners of common sense. So, I, I, you know, the one thing I would say is that when a lot of these coins get moved off the exchanges, it, it used to be considered a very bullish thing, right? Oh, people are pulling them off the exchanges. That means, well, at least they're not trying to sell them. Mm. If you see an influx of coins back onto exchanges, the thinking is, well, they're all getting ready to sell. But I think that signal might be broken at the moment. I, I, I don't think you can, you know, assume that because people are so paranoid about every company involved in crypto that it's a bullish thing that they're they're moving their coins into cold storage i think it's it's just survival at this point right and emily you know you pay a lot of attention to shall we say the sentiment negative or positive of folks in and around crypto not just institutional investors but also you know like retail investors on crypto twitter what have you observed to Regan's point about what folks are doing. I think the one thing that stood out to me a lot is that in this particular cycle of people moving money back and forth between like cold wallets or online exchange wallets, hot wallets, is that during this period of tumult, a lot of the the typical resort, um, last resort for crypto investors is that it's time to build. It's what you'll hear a lot of companies say during this time is that, okay, well, okay, no one's trading and everyone's moving their coins off the exchanges. So it's time to figure out how to build something cool so they come back. And in that, one of the top things is how do we make it easier for people to interact with things like cold wallets or interact with things that are are on exchanges? Because it's like at the beginning of this episode, we said, it's, it seems crazy. Why would you store your money on an exchange where it's really difficult to to get access to it or you don't own the rights to it? Like, isn't that bonkers? But the reason they do that is because it's really difficult to store it on a cold <laughs> wallet. You're going to forget your password. Yeah. And so one of the biggest challenges I think that crypto investors talk about is how do we make it more palatable for the masses? Because it's not just that, you know, Bitcoin goes up and down and you might lose all your money. It's also that the digital illiteracy is a thing and it's not even that you have to be digitally illiterate not to get crypto you you can be incredibly digitally illiterate and still not get crypto <laughs> well you know in traditional finance tradfi as it were the way that folks have solved this is with regulation and legal precedents right, right like right. if you put your money in a bank and the bank goes under up to a certain amount you will get your dollars back right it's not even a kind of a well-did city bank. No. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so if you had up to $250,000 in the U.S. and the bank goes under, you're going to get your money back. 
And so I find it a little bit challenging to square this idea of folks in crypto saying we want to make it more palatable for retail investors while simultaneously saying we don't want any additional government interaction with our asset class. There's a big elephant in the room here in that no one knows legally if a company like FTX files for bankruptcy, where the people who had deposited coins, where they stand in sort of the hierarchy of who gets paid out in a bankruptcy filing. You know, are they secured creditors? Do they get paid out ahead of non-secured creditors? That hasn't been tested in the bankruptcy courts. And if you read Coinbase's, one of my hobbies is reading risk factors of uh, public companies. If you read Coinbase's risk factors in their SEC filings, they'll say, fingers crossed, you know, they don't really say fingers crossed. I'm I'm adding that. But but it's, it's implied that we think in a potential bankruptcy, and no one's saying Coinbase is going to go bankruptcy, but these risk factors, you have to give every possible dire scenario. And they're saying, you know, in the event of bankruptcy, we think that people who have come to us for custody of of their coins, which is not just, you know, mom and pop traders, it could be, you know, hedge funds, institutional yeah, investors, big time players. Mm-hmm. We think that the courts will decide that they will get paid back their crypto holdings. But it's not it, it hasn't been really tested and appealed and, and everything in, in court. So no one really knows as a depositor in a, one of these exchanges or lenders or any other crypto company What's to become of those coins in a bankruptcy? How you'll get treated by the bankruptcy court as a client of of one of these companies? I feel like because all roads seem to lead back to Matt Levine somehow when it comes to this, it's very much the this isn't actually a trustless ecosystem. Like the amount of faith you have to have in different things working in order (laughs) to, to navigate the system right now seems to be at an all time high. Up next, more from Bloomberg's Mike Regan and Emily Nicole on the Crypto Faithful. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Emily, or maybe you, Mike, in your, you know, the time that you've been reporting on crypto, even just in the past 12 months, do you think there's been a shift in like the level of kind of aggression around, you know, some very straightforward types of reporting that's happening because the market has gone down because of this collapse of trust? Like, what are you seeing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's kind of two prongs to it, right? In that on the one hand, the aggression is stemming from now, especially in a post FTX world, even those at the very top of these companies like Binance CEO CZ say, okay, I'm going to be more proactive in calling out what I think could be fraud because maybe it'll give everybody the warning signs they needed to have spotted FTX before it happened. I actually reflect on the FTX uh, situation and I kind of blame myself for tweeting that too late. I think as an industry, we let FTX got too, too big before we started questioning some of those uh, things. So I'm taking the approach where we ask questions much earlier. It does and not that has already resulted in our, uh, several instances of him tweeting something and then having to delete the tweet because actually it caused more fear and uncertainty and doubt than it was supposed to do the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But on the other hand, there's also more aggression around trying to be more stable with what you're putting out there about your own company. But if you're an investor and you have your own portfolio, you want to make sure that the tokens that you hold aren't coming under duress unnecessarily. And so you'll say, you'll jump in quickly when you hear someone saying something that you think is inaccurate to say, actually, hold on, here's what I think. And the Binance example you gave of the 2 billion is a great example of that because we see this bot tweet out that 2 billion in Bitcoin is moving. And CZ rapidly says, this is just, you know, us doing something for our auditor who asked to do it for our proof of reserves. But then we've already heard from others like Mira Cristanto, who works for Digital Currency Group, saying that actually an auditor would never ask you to do that because that's a financial liability for them. And then you don't really know who to trust, right? And it leaves you in the in this limbo. And in a way, I think this all to me looks like the market is trying to do what regulators would do if if they could wrap their hands around this, which is sort of force some accountability on these companies, force more transparency with proof of reserves. And it reminds me of something we wrote a while ago, uh, that notion of crossing the chasm, you know, Mm -hmm. going from early adopters who are, you know, comfortable working with private keys and, and that sort of thing to sort of a more mainstream adoption where you have these big, you know, centralized exchanges and players and sort of being forced to to mature and provide the type of disclosure, the type of transparency, really build the type of confidence that, you know, decades of regulation did in the TradFi world is really being forced on them now, not by regulators, but by the market itself, by the players in the market who are like, enough is enough, you know, you need to do this, that, and the other thing to really have our confidence going forward. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a phrase in kind of sociology called context collapse, right? Which is what happens when a conversation or a set of idioms move from the people who have a really sophisticated understanding of what's happening into, into kind of the mainstream. And I really think that a fascinating dynamic in 2022 has been the rate at which, and actually going back to 2021, Crypto hit the mainstream on an upswing. It was, you know, Matt Damon and Tom Brady are telling you to to buy to buy crypto and buy NFTs. And then it hit the downstream really, really fast at the same time. And folks have a kind of a cultural whiplash, as in, is this thing good? Is this thing bad? Is it the worst thing ever? Is it the best thing ever? I just can't <laughs> tell. Um, and you don't really get the impression that the industry itself was like prepared to navigate all this. But you're right, absolutely not. And you know, the the due diligence was in, in a bull market is something that seems to have been deferred. Uh oh, this company's invested in that one. I I I can trust that they've done the due diligence. No one really seemed to do the homework they should have done because if you waited too long to do it, you missed out. You missed the the rally. So, you know, these periods of market destruction can be creative destruction in a way in that they will cause an outcome where, you know, problems get fixed, confidence restored, one would hope, but, you know, you never know how long it's going to take to to sort of really get it back into the full swing of things like we saw in 2021. All right. Well, thank you both for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. You can find more of Mike Regan and Emily Nicole's work on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. And of course, check out Mike's podcast that he hosts with friend of the show, Vildana, called What Goes Up. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. 
For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producers are Mohamed Farouk and Sharon Bariro. Our associate producers are Ty Butler and Moses Undam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.